the Wild West. It was called wild for a reason. It was a time before a lot of law and order. People who were yearning to be free and sometimes running from a past as much as running toward anything. There were those who wanted to live in the wide open spaces, who wanted to make a place for themselves. Some came in search of gold and silver and rich minerals found in the ground. There were men and women that were tough. They had to be tough. Today we're talking about one of the toughest ladies of the Old West, Big Nose Kate. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. Last year while in Prescott, Arizona, I talked my husband, mom, and my brother and sister-in-law into going with me to the Pioneer Home Cemetery there in Prescott. So today, I've got my Wild West buddy, my brother Garen. Howdy, partner! <laughs> Yeehaw! <laughs> what <Won't> I be? <laughs> hello, hello. <laughs> Thanks for being with me today, Garen. You got it. I'm sitting here with my uh, Stone Bones and Shadow t-shirt on, so <laughs> serious business. You are the best. Uh, my brother, he's my best buddy. <laughs> yep. And he's really not Wild West, but he does love history and a great story about the state that we live in, Arizona. So, as usual, I had done a little research before going and had discovered that Big Nose Kate was buried there. It was an awesome cemetery to wander, and we had an easy time finding Kate's grave. So, some of you might be thinking, Big Nose Kate, the name sounds familiar, but why? Let me give you a few hints. Think Western folk figure, Tombstone, Arizona, the Earp Brothers, a famous shootout, and Doc Holliday, the fabled gunfighter of the Old West. Ring any bells yet? Um, let's see. Does it ring any bells for me? I'm pretty sure we went to see the uh, the grave. It didn't say Big Nose Kate on the on the grave marker. <laughs> no, it did not. Kate was best known for being the common law wife of famed Doc Holliday. They had a pretty wild relationship, but seemed to not be able to stay away from each other for too long, no matter how many fights they had. Her name was obviously not Big Nose Kate. That was the name she would become known by as she worked as a prostitute. I don't know why. She actually was a fairly nice looking lady with, I guess, a prominent nose. In the photos I've seen, it doesn't look that big to me, but then again, nicknames are not always that logical, right? Well, and I suppose when you're in the Old West and you're looking for a prostitute, I don't know if you're looking for one with a big <laughs> nose specifically, but I don't know. I mean, different folks, different strokes, you know? <laughs> I found her to have an interesting story. All I really knew about her before now was from movies. So I'm going to share a little bit about the Pioneer Home first. The best, and may I say, funniest information about the home comes from an article from Life Magazine, November 3rd, 1947, by Claude Stanish. Here, I'll read you some. It's just so great. Perched on a granite hill overlooking Goose Flat near Prescott, Arizona, is a three-story red brick building the Arizona Pioneer's Home. The home is only one of its kind in America. State supported, it was founded both as memorial and haven for the men and women who lived through the blood and thunder days of early Arizona. Here live or have lived such characters of the Old West as Dynamite Joe, Whispering Joe Stevens, Sourdough George Wright, Foot and the Half Jones, <laughs> and Stoneboat Annie. All right. 
They have not been immortalized in legend or myth like Buffalo Bill Cody, nor do they represent the pure, heroic Westerner portrayed on the screen by Roy Rogers. But disillusioning as they might be to moviegoers and other Western romanticists, they provide the best composite portrait of the most fabled era in American history. In the stock movie or novel, the early Westerner is presented as a gregarious, chivalrous character, ever hunting for opportunities to risk his life for the preservation of society, law, and order. In reality, he was probably the most rugged individualist the world has ever known. The Arizona pioneers are a crusty, cantankerous lot whose only common denominator is that they do not like society generally and each other specifically. <laughs> Some of them have lived at the home for 15 years or more, but even these are about as institutionalized as a cage full of wildcats in the Bronx Zoo. All right, so just for clarity's purposes, are we saying this was like an old folks home for like wild western <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. So Kate, in her last years, lived in this Prescott Pioneers home. And yes, it was basically what you would call a nursing home in today's day. And it was for people who had lived in Arizona, I think for over 35 years, it says earlier, it says a little bit later in the article. And she was actually not born in America, as we'll find out earlier too. But anyway, she was able to get in. So she spent her last years at this rough and tumble old folks home with all of these hilarious, I don't even know what you say, iconic Old West people. Right. I mean, they don't get the jello ride and, <laughs> you know, turn into a gunfight. You don't even know the half of it. And this... This article was hysterical. I was just laughing so hard. And so I just was like, I have to say it in exactly his words because it's it's just yeah. it's just funny. And I thought, I've got to go back and research some of these other hilarious people and do some more episodes. And then I'll share some more of the article as well because it was quite a long article. But that is exactly what this is, is old folks home for crusty cantankerous <laughs> western all-stars western all-stars exactly with 160 of such intense individualists under one roof the home is about as peaceful as an old frontier saloon every week there are at least two or three old-fashioned brawls Bought sometimes with bare knuckles but more often with walking canes <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to challenge you to a duel with my walking cane. <laughs> <laughs> Practically all the guests carry canes, and as Superintendent Jack Sills says, they can swing a cane faster than old Billy the Kid could draw a six-shooter. <laughs> Never bring a cane to a gunfight. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Quarrels may start over the latest copy of Western Story, the next turn in the barber chair, or, as it usually turns out, over nothing at all. When Can-Can, John Henniger, owner of the famed Can-Can Bar in Tombstone, remarked one day that he saw Wyatt Earp shoot down the Clanton boys in cold blood, another old-timer screeched, That's a darned lie! It's never happened that away at all! <laughs> And within 60 seconds, both men were being wheeled into the hospital ward with cracked skulls. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not funny. Dynamite Joe, a small, grizzled, hard rock miner, was recently discharged from the home for the sixth time after punching an orderly in the mouth and displaying a two-bladed stiletto made by honing both ends of a file to razor sharpness. <laughs> While... <laughs> <laughs> While such behavior is hardly characteristic of an old folks' home, it must be understood that the men and women who live in the Prescott Institution are not retired bankers or dowagers, but the hardy survivors of a primitive civilization in which a man had to be able to use both his fists and a six-shooter to survive. 
Within their own society, they do not consider a man a social outcast for killing another man. <laughs> for several years, Six Shooter Smith, a tall, slim, blustery cowboy, carried a cane with 10 notches for the men he claimed to have killed. At least a fourth of the guests have served time in jail or the penitentiary for varying indiscretions. Their past sins are seldom mentioned, but if one asks what they got in trouble over, Doggy Ed Lemons, a banty-sized cowpuncher with close-cropped mustache drawls, over cows or women, that's all there was to get in trouble over those days. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Just never never say those two together in the same sentence again. <laughs> the people were, it didn't matter their background, disposition, or state of their pocketbooks. The only requirement for admittance the applicant be at least 60 years old and have lived at least 35 years in Arizona. Some of the guests have bank accounts of their own and could well afford to live in a private institution if not with relatives or friends. But they end up at the home because they like its easy discipline and other attractions. It is ideally nestled in the Bradshaw Mountains of North Central Arizona in one of the state's finest mountain resort areas. Guests are given individual rooms wherever possible, or at worst, are bunked in pairs. Oh, oh, oh. that's a recipe <laughs> for disaster. Rooms, while bleakly furnished with single beds, dresser, and spittoons, <laughs> usually have radios and are adequately heated against the sharp mountain air. Meals are nourishing and adapted to aging stomachs. There is a bin in the superintendent's office always filled with smoking and chewing tobacco. Each guest, rich or poor, gets $7.50 a month spending money. And remember, this was written in 1947. In such circumstances, the early Westerners live comfortable, if not exactly serene lives. While they're not listening to the radio in their own rooms, they're usually in the home's big lobby where newspapers and magazines are available, or on the veranda where they get a beautiful panoramic view of juniper and pine-covered hills. The veranda, equipped with a long line of rocking chairs, is known as Tobacco Row. <laughs> <laughs> because the favorite pastime is spewing tobacco juice and quids over the railing. Guests are not confined to the grounds, and those able may hobble down to Prescott's famed Whiskey Row, which is just a hoop and a holler, or about three quarters of a mile from the home. They spend most of their allowance in saloons along the row. While $7.50 does not buy many drinks of hard liquor over a 30-day period, <laughs> police officer W.R. Fitzgerald of Prescott explains ruefully that it don't take more than one or two to get them higher in hoot owls. <laughs> Sometimes the local constabulary puts them in jail to sober up but more often escorts them to the foot of the granite hill and shoes them up one of the foot trails. <laughs> the trails wind around big granite boulders, but even in an intoxicated state, the old timers negotiate them very well. The only recorded mishap occurred one night when Scrap Iron Kelly, <laughs> they all have nicknames, right. and Scrap Iron Kelly, a prospector, forgot to zig at one of the turns at Rad and ran head first into a granite boulder fracturing his skull. A lot, of, a lot of skull fractures going on. There's a lot of skull fractures at the old folks' home. While there are no cows at the home these days to instigate trouble, there are women. The females live in the right wing of the building and during certain hours can visit with the men. The old boys, despite their age, have not lost any of their yen for romancing. Almost any afternoon, one can see an old prospector or cowboy sparking one of Arizona's grand old ladies in the lobby or on the veranda. Kiss me on the veranda. No, <laughs> lips will do fine. <laughs> that was that, uh, the three amigos <laughs> quote. <laughs> <laughs> because there are more men than women, the competition is keen and some of the home's best fights have started as a result of female claim jumping. <laughs> In some respects, however, the presence of women has had a mellowing influence. 
The old timers do not fight or cuss when a woman is around, a throwback to the code of the Old West, which demanded that a man be always respectful in the presence of a lady. When love smitten, they think nothing of spending their whole month's allowance, money that would otherwise go for liquor, on a big box of candy or other gift for their lady friend. That's nice. They're softies in their old age. <laughs> they can't help it. They still want some kisses. <laughs> On the veranda. On the veranda. In the old days, when nobody came west except for health, wealth, or a ruined reputation, newcomers frequently went by assumed names. While granting them this right, the west also reserved the right to attach a nickname onto a man whose real name it did not know. Usually, these nicknames derived from some physical characteristic of the person or perhaps from one of his Western experiences. Thus, at the Pioneer's home, Foot and a Half Jones received his moniker because he blew off half of one foot with a charge of dynamite. Oh. <laughs> so, he's a foot and he ha the other one is a half. <laughs> he has a half a foot. That's a great nickname. Thus, foot and a half Jones. <laughs> Big Nose Kate, an old dance hall queen for obvious reasons, and Stone Boat Annie, another dance hall girl, because of an episode in which she drove a stone boat, a flat piece of iron hitched to mules and used for hauling rocks at breakneck speed around the Prescott Town Square, <laughs> which we can picture having been to yes. Prescott. They have a lovely town square. Whispering Joe Stevens, who received his nickname because he claimed the loudest voice in Yavapai County, he knows his roommate only as Limpy Henry. <laughs> <laughs> the rooming arrangement is unusual because Henry, who admits he came to Arizona just ahead of a Texas posse, once worked on Stevens Ranch in Williamson Valley and made off one day with his boss's prize quarter horse. When asked if he has forgiven his roommate for the theft, Joe replies, Yeah, I've forgiven him for stealing the hoss, and he's forgiven me for not killing him. He adds, Of course, I trailed him, and if he wouldn't have been riding a better hoss than I was, I would have killed him. <laughs> <laughs> but that's all in the past. <laughs> but since he had his best quarter hoss... <laughs> He couldn't catch up to him. Other than that, he would have killed him. <laughs> so this guy was limpy. Yeah. <laughs> we've got limpy. We've got foot and a half. I'm, I'm guessing foot and a half was pretty limpy, too. <laughs> he had to have been limpy. <laughs> I can't even imagine walking with half a foot. <sighs> so this place just sounded like a hoot in the old days with all of those just you know, crusty men and women that just were hardened by life and who had worked hard. There was a part of it that talked about how, like, they didn't want to, like, shower and bathe very often because they're used to just <laughs> living out, you know. Roughing it, yeah. <laughs> they were just like, yeah. who are these people telling us when we can take a shower? It's a once-a-year thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I just, I just thought it was hysterical. I just had to add that part that's pretty good so the older men and women that die there at this home are then placed in the pioneer home cemetery and so that's where garen and i went that day and there were many interesting headstones there and so much history what do you remember about our cemetery wandering that day yeah i, I mean it's sort of up on a hill and most of the headstones, when we found Kate, you know, it was very simple, very simple headstone. Um, and, you know, all the others uh, around it were quite simple too. Of course, with hers, there were some items and little things that people had set out because it was, was her headstone. But, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it's a pretty cemetery up on the hill, if you can call it a cemetery in Arizona pretty. <laughs> when usually they're, you know, a lot of times it's just dirt and rocks. <laughs> you have to watch your step for sure. Watch for snakes. And if you're getting down and looking through things or moving grass, you got to watch your hands so you don't get a little <laughs> scorpion or... That's right. <laughs> a fun little friend like that. 
um, yeah, I thought it was a really, really interesting cemetery. Um, I also learned that a lot of the people there ended up without a marker at all. And maybe it was older times and the home didn't have the money. You know, it's all funded by the state. And so I don't know yeah. if it's just at one point they decided, okay, we need to start having a headstone for people. So anyway, really fun little wander. So let me share with you what I was able to find out about Kate. She was born November 7th, 1850 in Budapest, Hungary. And her name was Mary Catherine Peroni. I'm assuming that's how you say it, Peroni. <laughs> Peroni, Peroni. <laughs> Peroni. Was she from Budapest or Budapest? She's from Budapest. <laughs> Budapest. Okay. <laughs> if you've seen Black Widow, you get the you get the humor. Yeah. <laughs> the eldest daughter of a wealthy physician named Dr. Michael Heroni. She received an education befitting an aristocrat's daughter. She was literate and spoke several languages, including Hungarian, French, Spanish, and English. In 1962, Dr. Hroni accepted a position as a personal surgeon to Emperor Maximilian of Mexico. Three years later, in 1865, Maximilian's government crumbled. So Dr. Hroni fled to the U.S. with his family, and they settled in Davenport, Iowa. This was a difficult year for the girls as her mother died in March, followed by her father in May of the same year, both of unknown causes. And Mary Catherine and her younger siblings were placed in the home of their stepmother's brother-in-law. <laughs> One of those stepmother's sister's brother's cousin. <laughs> Great aunt's brother-in-law, sister's former roommate. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and apparently, I guess that didn't go very well because in 1870, they were left in the care of attorney Otto Smith. Then the children were placed in foster homes. At the age of 17, Kate left the foster home and stowed away on a steamboat to St. Louis, Missouri. Upon discovering his stowaway, the captain, named Fisher, took pity on her and placed her under his protection. She took the captain's name and under the name of Kate Fisher, entered a convent school in St. Louis, graduating in 1869. <laughs> nice, that makes sense. I I know. <laughs> From men to prostitute, it's, you know. It's just a little step and a hop. <laughs> yeah. But I thought, Captain Fisher, what a nice man. Just yeah. find some little stowaway 17-year-old <laughs> teen and take care of her. So kudos to Captain Fisher. Kate says that she then married a dentist named Silas Melvin and that they had a child. Although no record survives of either the marriage or the birth, she said that both husband and baby died of, uh, you'll never guess. Uh, I'm going to go with yellow fever. Yellow fever. For 1,000. For 500. For 500, yes. Yellow fever strikes again. Oh, my goodness. Okay, now, did you say that her husband was a dentist? Yes. She's got a type. Like, she's got a thing for dentists, right? <laughs> I don't want to give away the ending, but <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, there's another dentist in her future. You are not mistaken, my friend. <laughs> nice. That is, that is a good point. I hadn't thought of that, but <laughs> right on the money. Some women are just into dentists, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like pulling teeth. <laughs> oh, you're so funny. <laughs> In 1869, she's recorded as working as a prostitute. <laughs> Some people say, no, she just made that up. She never was married. She never had a child. You can't find it in any of the records. So I have no idea. But there is record that she was working as a prostitute for Madame Blanche Tribal in St. Louis. Okay. In 1874, Kate was fined for working as a sporting woman which that's a prostitute. Sporting, sporting woman. It's sporty, it's a sport. <laughs> in a sporting house brothel. <laughs> it starts making me think of all these sporting goods stores. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's a sporting house. 
and it's in Dodge City, Kansas, run by Nellie or Bessie Ketchum Earp. Yep, wife of James Earp. And at this time, she called herself Kate Elder. James Earp was, yes, one of the Earps, the older brother of the better known Virgil, Wyatt, and Morgan, the Earp brothers. This is how she starts getting tangled up with those Earps. Yep, and destiny had its way. And while working there, she met Doc Holliday at John Shancy's saloon where Holliday was dealing cards. She earned her nickname Big Nose Kate during this time. And who knows, maybe the guys were like, you know, the big nose gal. I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah, Kate. Big nose Kate. Yeah. <laughs> she was tough, stubborn, and had a temper to match Doc Holliday's. It seems to me like they were a little bit like oil and water, but they were attracted to each other and began a relationship at this time. Kate herself never denied that she was anything other than a rip-roaring, hard-drinking, gunslinging prostitute. And she liked the life of being a sporting woman. She liked to be sporty. <laughs> she was into sports. <laughs> she was really into sports. And apparently so was Doc Holliday. So Doc Holliday, obviously Doc dentist doc holiday right yes so, you know, so he was a dentist. day as a dentist nights as gambler mm -hmm. and, right. doc said at one point that he considered kate to be his intellectual equal you can just picture from all the movies we've seen my favorite is val kilmer with doc holiday being <laughs> doc holiday he's my favorite one right and of course, you know, if you've listened to this podcast before now, you know, I love me a Southern drawl. <laughs> and he was born and raised in Georgia. And once I get to his gravestone, then we will do the story on Doc Holliday. But I haven't been there yet, but I'm gonna. It's just in Colorado, so I'm sure I can get there <laughs> sometime soon. We'll tell all of his story. Do you think on his headstone it says, I'm your Huckleberry? <laughs> I don't no? Know. I wonder if he actually said that to Kate, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Wyatt Earp told of a time that Kate got Doc out of trouble in Fort Griffin in 1877. Doc was dealing cards in a gambling house to a guy that had a rep for being a bully. His name was Ed Bailey. He was used to having his own way without question. Bailey was unimpressed with Doc Holliday, and in an attempt to irritate him, he kept picking up the discards and looking at them. Looking at the discards was strictly prohibited by the rules of Western poker, a violation that could force the player to forfeit the pot. <laughs> Holliday warned Bailey twice. Bailey ignored him and picked up the discards again. This time, Doc raked in the pot without showing his hand or saying a word, and in true Wild West fashion, Bailey brought out his pistol from under the table, but before the man could pull the trigger, Doc slashed the man across the stomach with a knife. Bailey oh. lay sprawled across the table, his blood and guts spilling all over the floor. Oh. Yeah. They didn't call it the Wild West for nothing. <laughs> he will never cheat at a card game. <laughs> he will never cheat again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing that his actions were in self-defense, Doc did not run. However, he was still arrested and imprisoned in a local hotel room, since there was no jail in the town at the time. Friends of the guy, Ed Bailey, formed a vigilante group to try to get revenge. Kate was fearful that the mob would be able to overtake the local lawmen, and so Kate quickly thought of a plan to spring Doc out. She set fire to an old shed and it quickly went up in flames. As it was discovered, everyone came running to help put out the fire before it was able to engulf the entire town. You know, when everything was just built, all these little wooden shacks, everything could just go up. So as yeah. everyone was involved in fighting the fire, Kate goes to the room where Doc is being held with a pistol in each hand and <laughs> confronts the officer guarding Holiday. She disarms the officer, and she and Doc are able to escape. 
Now, much later in 1940, Kate herself denied that this had ever happened. Then again, by that time, she was nearly 90 years old. So who knows? She lived till 90 years old, that little stubborn lady. Yeah, she wasn't messing around. Hiding out during the night, the next morning they headed to Dodge City, Kansas on stolen horses and registered at Deacon Cox's boarding house as Dr. and Mrs. J.H. Holliday. Doc so appreciated what Kate did for him and he was determined to make her happy. He said he would give up gambling and would make a living in dentistry. In return, Kate promised to give up the life of saloons and prostitution. Sacrifices <laughs> must be made. <laughs> Hashtag sacrifices. Yeah. Oh, I have to give up my sports. <laughs> <laughs> Again, hashtag goals. Yeah, life goals. <laughs> life goals. Well, they gave the straight life a try. Doc opened a dental practice by day, but ended up spending most of his time at night gambling and drinking. <laughs> the two of them were renowned for fighting all the time, sometimes violently. But they made up each time despite the volatile relationship. According to Kate, the couple later married in Valdosta, Georgia. But this again cannot be verified. <laughs> <laughs> Not much can. <laughs> <laughs> Kate and Doc spent the next few years together on the road. They went to South Dakota, to Colorado, Las Vegas, Nevada, Santa Fe, New Mexico Territory, and Prescott, Arizona Territory. They seemed to settle for a bit in each place, working at saloons and dance halls, and Doc did a little dentistry on the side. <laughs> and even for a time around 1879, they actually separated for a couple years. Hmm. Some point around 1879, Doc accompanied the herbs to Prescott. By Kate's account, she went to Prescott, and I don't know if this was like an accidental meeting, but they met up again Doc and Kate in Prescott. Wyatt Earp and his brothers were there too. Virgil Earp had already been in Prescott, Arizona and persuaded his brothers to all move to Tombstone. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> Doc Holliday was making a lot of money at the gambling tables in Prescott, so he stayed back and Kate was happy to keep him company again. Well, yeah, I wonder why he was raking in the dough. <laughs> Kate was working as a prostitute in the upstairs rooms at the Palace Saloon. They fell back into each other and returned to their erratic romance. <laughs> I just got to wonder, he doesn't seem to have minded that she continued to prostitute <laughs> yeah. to do sex work. I mean, maybe that's what they were fighting about all the time, actually. Who knows? He, you know, he's kind of like, as long as I can gamble and drink, you can prostitute and it's a fair trade. You know, like. I, yeah, or you're making good money, girl. You <laughs> yeah, go. Yeah, you go. Yeah. As long as I'm your <laughs> huckleberry, know. that's all that matters. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. They soon parted ways again, and Kate left for Globe, Arizona. Sometime. While she was in Globe, she was running, I guess, a sporting house. <laughs> sporting goods store. <laughs> sporting goods store. And she would rejoin Holiday soon after he arrived in Tombstone about a year later. According to dates, it kind of looked like she was going back and forth from Globe. But it's told that she would stay with Doc whenever she was in Tombstone or, you know, living in Tombstone. They were known to continue their frequent arguments and, as Kate, drank a lot, and I think he probably did too, the fights would get more and more serious and often the drunkenness would turn abusive mm -hmm. and he would throw her out. I'm done. Get out. Kate said to have run a successful bordello in Tombstone as well during her time there. It's during this time that Kate came to hurt Doc deeply, in fact, betray Doc thereby losing him. Holiday had been friendly with a man known to be a robber, and the cowboy faction of Tombstone took the opportunity to accuse Doc of being in a stagecoach robbery and murder that occurred near Tombstone on March 15, 1881. Holiday's enemies discovered that he and Kate had just had a fight, and while she was on a drunken binge and still ranting and mad about Doc throwing her out, 
they were able to give her more whiskey and then persuade her to swear that Doc had been involved and that he had been one of the masked riders that had robbed the coach and killed the driver. Holiday was then arrested based on her testimony. The next day, as the Earps tried to round up witnesses to counter her false witness, a sober Kate recanted her story. Holiday was released from jail, but the relationship never fully recovered. He felt betrayed and she had lost his love and respect. Hmm, sad. That was it. So apparently he gave her some money and put her on the next stage out of town. <laughs> That's kind of sad though. I'm sure she regretted it. I mean, she probably didn't even remember considering she was drunk at the time. She was drunk and those stinky men, they came and gave her more drink and she didn't know what she was doing. Right. The two of them never seemed to truly leave each other for long because years later, when Kate was 89 years old, she wrote a letter revealing that she was with Doc on the day in his room in Fly's boarding house next to the OK Corral. Mm -hmm. that the shootout occurred. The shootout at the OK Corral. And that she had actually witnessed the shootout. There were details in her writings that strongly suggest that she was telling the truth. So here's what she told from her words in the letter. In Kate's words, on the day of the gunfight, a man entered Fly's boarding house with a bandaged head and a rifle. He was looking for Doc Holliday, who was still in bed after a night of gambling, during which he'd had an argument with Ike Clanton that had been stopped by onlookers. The man was turned away by Mrs. Fly. He was probably Ike Clanton, although how Clanton's head had come to be bandaged is unknown. Clanton was known to have had headaches, and maybe that had something to do with it. But a short time later, Virgil Earp hit him over the head and removed his weapons. So maybe they have their facts wrong. Maybe hit him over the head first and then he had his head bandaged. That was that was the story that I I thought had happened. I thought he when he took his guns away cuz they weren't allowed to have guns unless they were law. Mhm. Mm he whacked him over the head. Yeah. Clanton's entering Holiday's rooming house with a rifle had given Holiday and the Earps all the reason they needed to believe that a gunfight between Holiday and the Cowboys was inevitable. While Clanton was being disarmed, arrested, and taken before a judge, Kate claims that Holiday put on his clothes and went to see the Earps. They had gathered at the corner of 5th Street and Allen, where they could keep an eye on the courtroom to the south, the OK Corral, a block west, and the various cowboys who were believed to be coming and going from out of town. Eventually, the Earps and Holiday walked down Fremont Street to confront the boys in the vacant lot west of Fly's boarding house. Kate would have been able to see the fight just feet away from her window overlooking the vacant lot. In Kate's version of the gunfight, Holiday had a problem with his rifle after the shooting started. He threw it to the ground and drew his pistol. This report fits with what is known of the events, although what Holiday actually threw down would have been his double-barreled short shotgun, the gun he had emptied when killing Tom McLaurie. It's only from Kate that we know what happened after the fight. Doc Holliday went back to his room and tended to a small wound on his hip, which he had gotten from a bullet fired by Frank McLaurie. He sat on the edge of the bed and wept from the shock of what had just happened. That was awful. Kate claims he said, just awful. Hmm, that's interesting. Now, have you been down to to Tombstone Lachelle and, and seeing the reenactment of the shootout at the OK Corral. The last time that I went through Tombstone was I was in college, so, I mean, two or three years ago. Uh huh. Haha. -ha. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm trying to remember what I saw there, but I really need to go again and then we can do a really fun yeah. episode and, you know, dig more into the details of of the herbs and Doc Holiday and, you know, all of that, but... I, I assume there, there will be an episode about Tombstone considering just the name of the town. But, uh, <laughs> oh, I, I guess it's been, it's been a couple of years ago, but, uh, but yeah, you, you can go and they have this reenactment 
and it is in the exact location that it took place um, and they still have Fly's boarding house over here and you know they come around the corner mm -hmm. and I mean the fight is over in less than I want to say 20 seconds it's not like the movies where there's yeah. this drawn out gunfight uh, I mean it's just yeah. they walk into each other pistols are drawn and just shoot 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 and then it's over um, but it's it's pretty cool to go see the uh, reenactment. They do a really nice job, and they're all dressed up and with the characters, and it's it's fun. Yeah, I think the fight I had read it was over in under thirty seconds. Yeah. After that time, Kate went back to live in Globe, but in 1887 she traveled to Glenwood Springs, Colorado, to see Doc Holliday. Her Doc was dying. Holiday spent his remaining time at a cabin owned by Kate's brother near Glenwood Springs, near to the Sulphur Springs there, in the hopes of its healing waters could help his condition. However, his health continually worsened, and he was drinking heavily. After suffering with tuberculosis for years, Doc Holiday was now very ill and destitute. Ultimately, Doc went into town to die. He passed at the Hotel Glenwood, on November 8th, 1887, at the age of 36, oh. with Kate at his side. Wow, he was young. He was, wasn't he? I didn't realize he was only that age of 36. Yeah. It's said that Kate probably helped support Doc in his final months. So even with all of their ups and downs, <laughs> she was there for him still in the end. Yeah. And perhaps they really loved each other. Either way, they were truly one of those couples that couldn't live with or without each other. Yeah, did she ever marry after being with Doc? She did. Oh. Sometime soon after Holiday's death, Kate married George Cummings, a blacksmith by trade in Colorado, and the two moved to Bisbee, Arizona. Their marriage lasted about a year and the couple split up. Kate then found work in Cochise, Arizona for a while before taking a job in 1900 with a man named John Howard as a housekeeper in Dos Cabezas, Arizona. Wow, I mean, she really just from one end of the state to the other. Yeah, she definitely had lived here for 30 years, yeah. right? I yeah. mean, her 35 or whatever it took for the old folks home. And she lived there until Howard's death in 1930. Oh. So that was a long time for Kate, 30 years. Yeah. And then I read that she had also inherited his property then there's a story that she then did give it to some of his relatives or something. I didn't dig super far into that, but anyway, just kind of wondered if they were more of an employee, employer, especially if she was given, you know, his inheritance. Yeah, I don't know. she was treated like family for sure. Mm -hmm. Either way, sounds like she had a more peaceful 30 years than she had <laughs> After had. After her first 30. <laughs> exactly. Kate was still going by the name of her last husband, Cummings, and as she became old and increasingly frail, she applied to the Arizona Pioneers Home in Prescott, Arizona, the state establishment for elderly and destitute Arizona residents from frontier days. She was finally accepted after a six-month wait. <laughs> I can just picture like this application that you have to fill out. And it's not only did you have to live in Arizona for 30, 35 years, but you also mm -hmm. had to have, you know, <laughs> been, a, yeah. been a gunslinger, robbed a train, <laughs> um, participated in a bank robbery. Um. How many guns do you own? <laughs> yeah. How fast at you would drive? Yeah. <laughs> there must have been like some really hardcore application process. Were you really a prostitute? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How many prostitution institutions did, did you run? You run? <laughs> establishments. How many prostitution establishments did you run? How many baths did you take? <laughs> yeah. How often do you bathe? Is it A, <laughs> once a year, B, once a month? Yeah, and have funny. you lived in a mining town? Have you ever been bitten by a rattlesnake? Have you ever ridden a javelina? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Have you ever gone in to save your lover holding a pistol in each hand? That's right, yeah. Jailbreak. Oh, that's so funny. Oh, brother. Kate had never become a citizen of the United States. Remember, she was born in Budapest. That's right. Hungary. 
So I'm not sure exactly how she did it, but somehow she was able to claim that she was born in Iowa and maybe they just took pity on her and she was admitted to the Pioneer Home for her last years. She was one of the first women in Arizona to be admitted to the home. While their newspaper men swooped in to try and get the scoop straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak, <laughs> and asked about her life with Doc and their time in Tombstone. Kate, she wanted to be paid for her story, but they refused to pay. So most of her story will never be known. She held strong. She's like, nope, you ain't getting it then. <laughs> yeah. She only does things for money, folks. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sport. It's a sport. Yeah, be a good sport. <laughs> Kate did say of her life, part is funny and part is sad, but such is life any way you take it. <laughs> and ain't that just the truth? <laughs> Kate stayed at the Pioneer's home until her death on November 20th, 1940. Sounds like she left the man's home in 1930 and she died in 1940. Okay. So she might have lived there upwards of 10 years. Yeah. She died five days before her 90th birthday. Wow. And she is buried in the Pioneer's home cemetery under a stone that simply says Mary Kay Cummings. We were a little surprised when we were there to see so many little offerings that people left there at her grave. Mm -hmm. There was a little metal box that had notes and little things that people had left in there. And there was a small book wherein people wrote a little note to Kate and wrote that they had been there to visit her grave. It was kind of, you know, you could sign your name like mm -hmm. a little registry of who had been there and where you were from. And I also left a little note and said that I would like to tell her story in a podcast. My brand new brainchild <laughs> at the time. And now here I am. I'm honoring that promise. <laughs> nice. Do you remember what was there as part of the little tokens people had left? I, I was trying to remember. I, I feel like it was like a pack of cigarettes and then a couple mm -hmm. of necklaces and maybe a, a bullet sh or a shell. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, yeah, just, some just little flowers, things like that. Little, that were... mm -hmm, little trinkety things. Yeah. It was neat to see how many people would go to remember her that would stop by this obscure little cemetery there in Prescott, Arizona. Yeah, definitely. And stop and leave something for Big Nose Kate. Big Nose Kate. There's said to be paranormal activity at a place called Big Nose Kate's, and it is built on the former site of the Grand Hotel. Opening in September of 1880, the hotel experienced a short tenure. It caught fire two years later, catastrophically destroyed. The fire reduced this once beautiful high-profile hotel to ashes. Mm -hmm. The hotel's saloon was one of the few surviving structures, and Doc and Kate were regulars at the saloon, and so they say that visitors witness the sound of phantom singing in empty rooms. Others overhear talking long after the building's abandoned. Spirits toss silverware from tabletops. Mm, that's not nice. <laughs> that is definitely not nice. Lights turn on and off by themselves. Even the balcony mannequins are moved and tossed about by unseen specters. And that's just freaky. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> mannequins are, are freaky enough on their own. <laughs> yes. Exactly what I was thinking. Like, can you imagine you lock up the next day you go in and you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Remember in I Am Legend where Will Smith just loses his crap because I can't remember what the guy's name was. What was it? He's like, Joe, what are you doing here, Joe? Yeah. You're not supposed to be here, Joe. What are you doing in the road, Joe? He goes to the video store to like rent his movies from the mannequins, and then yeah, yes. Then a few days later, Joe's standing in the middle of the road, and he's like, "Wait a second, <laughs> yeah." Oh heck no! <laughs> yeah. Oh, just a little side note about pop culture. Yeah. <laughs> Cameras malfunction, supposedly, and reveal inexplicable hazy blurs. There are also cold spots and unidentified footsteps. Who is haunting this spooky saloon? 
I'm assuming it could be a number of people. <laughs> yeah. So when Doc, Holiday, and Big Nose Kate were in Tombstone together, they could usually be found at the Crystal Palace Saloon, though at the time it was called the Golden Eagle Brewery. They would regularly stay there at the Crystal Palace, and their frequent arguments could often be heard by others. <laughs> there have been several accounts of a provocatively dressed woman usually standing around the bar, those who claim to have seen her say she seems to be looking around intently for somebody. She appears and then vanishes without a trace. The Crystal Palace was no stranger to ladies of the night. This apparition may be a tragic player in a tale lost to time. Or could it be Big Nose Kate herself looking for Doc Holliday? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Another common ghostly account is that of an older gentleman well-dressed in 1880s clothing. He is seen sitting at a table only to stand up and head to the men's restroom. But he never comes out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> an older gentleman he has to go a lot you gotta go you gotta go i was gonna say maybe it's doc holiday hiding from kate <laughs> in the bathroom yeah. but he didn't get to be an older gentleman so probably just somebody needed to go <laughs> that's right there are also several stories of lights in the restroom turning on and off by themselves faucets and toilets operating with nobody touching them if these stories are true who could the spirit haunting a men's restroom be? And why? <laughs> Maybe someone died in the restroom. Did they have a restroom there in those days? They probably had an outhouse. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no kidding. They probably had an outhouse. They didn't have indoor plumbing. <laughs> exactly. It's its own version of uh, Moaning Myrtle. We need... <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Somebody who fell in the outhouse and died. Exactly. And now, th now they're going to haunt the indoor plumbing. <laughs> That's right. Well, thank you, Garen. I appreciate you coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> it was a good time. It was a good time. I appreciate you. Big Nose Kate, a woman of the Old West. She's been immortalized in books, TV, and movies. She was rough and tough. A dance hall girl a sporting house gal, and a businesswoman. She liked it that way, being her own boss and calling her own shots. And she used what she had to get by. She was an alcoholic, a tough fighter, and a woman that wasn't afraid to get her hands dirty to defend the man she loved. And even though they couldn't seem to live together for long, she made sure she was there for her doc when she heard that he was dying and took care of him till the end. She really was something. Rest in peace, Kate. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. You can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on Facebook, like us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter, and leave us a comment. We love to hear from our listeners.